0: The sermon this morning is going to come from Isaiah chapter 24. If you're tracking with where uh, we were last Sunday, Matt preached from Isaiah 12 last Sunday. You say, why are we going from Isaiah 12 to Isaiah 24? Well, Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 are chapters about God's judgment. God's judgment on all the nations that were in and around Israel and then even God's judgment on Jerusalem itself. So chapter 24 is really a summary which concludes on God's judgment on the entire earth. And so that's where we will be this morning. Isaiah chapter 24, verses one through 16. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Also in the church app, you will find a sermon listening guide and the scripture is printed there as well if you don't have a Bible. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Oh, Father, this is a heavy passage of judgment. And yet it's your word. Would you open our hearts to hear, open our hearts to understand. Open our hearts to the salvation that you offer. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. John Ortberg writes the following. He says, when we take our children to the shrine of the golden arches, they always lust for the meal that comes with a cheap little prize. A combination christened in a moment of marketing genius, the happy meal. You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. And he goes on to say that the advertisements have convinced his children that there's a McDonald-shaped vacuum in their souls, and their souls won't find rest until they find rest in McDonald's Happy Meal. He goes on to uh, talk about once in a while, he'll try to buy his kids off. So he'll say, hey, let's just get the food and I'll give you a quarter and we'll go buy a toy. And they say, no, we want the happy meal. And then he says this about the response in those moments in the restaurant. All over the restaurant, people crane their necks to look at the tight-fisted, penny-pinching, cheapskate of a parent who would deny a child that meal of great joy. The happy meal. The problem with it is the happiness wears off, and they need a new fix. And the reality is that as adults, we don't get smarter. The happy meals just get more expensive, don't they? Isaiah chapter 24 is about two types of joy. A joy that depends on the seen, and a joy that depends on the unseen. The joy that depends on the seen is temporary. The joy that depends on the unseen lasts forever. This temporary kind of joy that depends on the seen is explained in verse 11. All joy, referring to this temporary kind of joy, has grown dark. The joy that lasts forever is described in verse 14. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Right here in this chapter, two types of joy contrasted, very different, The question is, which kind of joy do you have? Who or what does your joy depend on? On a day-to-day basis, who or what does your joy depend on? To answer this question, we're going to explore these two types of joy. So first, the, the joy that depends on the scene or this temporary kind of joy. Isaiah describes the experience of this kind of joy in verses 8 and 9. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. Verse 9, no more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. This kind of joy is summed up by that phrase, drink wine with singing. This is describing a party atmosphere. This is describing revelry. This is describing Mardi Gras. This is the the environment that's being described here. But what it does is it summarizes the lifestyle that is dependent on the scene for joy it describes a lifestyle that wholly looks to this world to provide and wholly and solely looks to this world to provide joy and satisfaction that's the kind of joy here that's being described what your physical eyes can see what your physical hands can touch that that is what is going to bring me joy that's the experience of this kind of joy Now the question is, how did, how did Isaiah, or the people that Isaiah is writing to, how did they get to this point? What's the cause of this kind of joy? Right, what produces this kind of joy? Verse five: "For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes broken the everlasting covenant. you've got three phrases here. And these phrases together capture this kind of joy experience or this kind of joy seeking. And all three of these phrases are similar but have different emphasis that capture it. So transgress the laws. That word transgressed. It means to disobey or to cross over. That's, that's describing a refusal to live according to God's design. The second phrase, violated the statutes. The word violated means to alter or to change. So not just refusing to live according to God's design, but creating a whole new design, a whole new man-made design by which to live. Third phrase, they have broken the everlasting covenant. The word broken, it's much deeper than transgressed or violated. The word broken means to nullify or set aside any concept of a covenant relationship with God. So broken means to to set God aside and to completely cut him out of life. So these three together describe why the people here in Isaiah 24 and certainly today, why they experience this kind of joy that's dependent on what they can see and touch. Music and wine, those are, are two things that are mentioned in this joy experience, right? Music and wine are good gifts from God. In fact, If you go back to the very beginning of the world, our very first parents were put in a garden where they had raw materials to make music and to make wine. The problem is when you you disconnect the gift, we'll call those creational gifts, right? Music, wine, food, examples of creational gifts. When you disconnect the gift from the giver, things come unraveled. And that's what we see in the early parts of Genesis. So for example, by Genesis 9, Noah plants a vineyard, makes wine, drinks it, and gets drunk. Right, because the gift disconnected from the giver, now I have to squeeze joy out of this gift that in and of itself is incapable of producing the joy that my soul longs for. So what's the result of disobeying God, transgressing the laws, violating the statutes? What's the result? Verse six, therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Now now what is this curse in verse six? Well, it's describing the judgment of God that's coming down at the end of time. But it's the same curse that was announced in Genesis chapter 3, that when our first parents disobeyed God and rebelled against him and basically walked away from him, the curse was he sent them out of the garden, away from his presence. And that's when the gift became disconnected from the giver and things come unraveled, as we just saw with Genesis 9, with Noah, with one of these creational gifts that gets abused, that gets consumed in excess. Our first parents were sent out of the garden and they got exactly what they wanted. They didn't want God. God gave them what they wanted, which was a life without him. And they found out very quickly that life apart from God with his gifts alone is a disaster because these gifts start to get abused and consumed in excess because they're never meant to give the joy that our hearts need. And they get sought after again and again. Pastor Jonathan Edwards, he gives this great uh, picture of the relationship between God, the giver, and the gift. He says this, the enjoyment of God Is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops but God is the ocean. You experience this in everyday life, whether you realize it or not. Think about the time that you went and did a fun activity with people that you loved much. Could be with family, could have been with friends, but people you know and love deeply. You go do this activity together and it produces tremendous joy. Like, that's that's the most fun thing I've ever done. That was so joy-producing. And so you say, we're going to do that again. And then you do it again, but for a a variety of reasons. Most of your friends or family that were with you the first time don't come. And so you do the same exact activity. And yet you're not with your friends that were with you the first time, and you walk away and go, wow, that wasn't as fun. That didn't produce as much joy. You ever heard somebody say to you, it just wasn't the same without you? You know, doing something, it just wasn't the same without you. The realization in that moment is that the joy didn't come from the activity alone. The joy came from the relationships within the activity. And so it is with God. This explains why there is nothing in this world that can ever satisfy you apart from God. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy you. Not the most exotic vacation, the most exquisite food, the most savory drink, the most lavish possessions. All those can bring is an insipid and temporary joy that leaves your heart longing. I love the way... Alec Mottier says it. He says, To want nothing but this world is to end up with nothing but want. And that is so true. So, what's the end of this kind of joy? A joy that depends on the scene, a joy that is just dependent on what I can see and touch. What's the result? What's the end of this kind of joy? Verse 10. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. The word wasted is the Hebrew word tohu. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter one, verse two, the second verse in the Bible, where it says the earth was without form. The earth was without tohu. That's the word. This kind of joy-seeking that's just dependent on what I can see, what I can touch, produces tohu. It produces disorder and chaos. Disorder and chaos. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's the kind of joy the world seeks. And if the world is seeking that kind of joy, why isn't our world empty and disordered and absolutely chaotic? Well, the answer is because of God's restraining hand. God's restraining hand, the reason the world is not in absolute, utter chaos is because God restrains it from going there with his hand. What's described in Isaiah 24 is when God removes his restraining hand. When he takes away his hand of restraint and he takes away his creational gifts, like food and wine and music and relationships. So when he removes his hand, he removes his creational gifts, we get verse 11. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. The judgment of God is when he takes away the music. He takes away the wine. The music stops. The party comes to an end. That's the judgment of God. Verse one describes it. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. Now, oftentimes when we talk about God's judgment, the cry of response can be, it's unfair. It's unfair. How could God do such a thing? But I would argue that is there anything more fair than God giving people what they want? So if, if, if someone says, I don't want God, I'm going to cut him out of my life, cut him out of this world, I just want the world, judgment is God saying, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you want. What's actually unfair, if we're going to talk about fairness, what's unfair is that people get to enjoy his creational gifts while rejecting him. God, I don't want you, but give me your wine. God, I don't want you, but give me your music. God, I don't want you, but give me your food. God, I don't want you, but give me relationships. That's actually what's unfair. The judgment of God at the end of time is when he takes away his restraining hand and he removes his creational gifts. The fact that he hasn't done that yet I mean, we're 2,000 years at this point roughly removed from Christ's death and resurrection. The fact that he hasn't done that yet speaks to his immense patience and love. God is, is a long-suffering God. He's a patient God. That's the God that we know. So here's the question. How do you know if your joy is functionally dependent on the scene? Because that can be a pretty abstract question. If I say, who or what does your joy depend on? Or how do you know if your joy depends on this world, what you can see and touch? You'd probably be quick to say, "I, I mean, I don't know. There's a couple of emotions that are recorded in this chapter that are a great diagnostic to begin to answer this question for us. When God takes away the scene, when He takes away His creational gifts, look what happens. Verse ten: Every house is shut up so that none can enter. What's that describing? That's fear. That's fear and anxiety. We're shutting everything off, right? Fear and anxiety has descended. Look at verse eleven. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. Outcry. That's that's anger. Disappointment is natural, but anger is a sign that your joy depends on that thing. Concern is natural, but fear and anxiety is a sign that your joy depends on that thing or that person. In what ways does your joy depend on the scene? Who or what does your joy depend on? We've looked at joy that depends on the seen. Let's explore now joy that depends on the unseen. Isaiah describes this kind of joy experience, a joy that's dependent on the unseen in verse 14. He says, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Now, as I read these first 16 verses, when you got to verse 14, it almost feels like there's this screeching halt. Whoa, where'd this come from? Doom and gloom, dark judgment, verse 14 in the beginning of 16, and then it returns back to some doom and gloom. What's going on here? Well, what you've got here is a picture of a small group of people that are rejoicing even though the world around them is falling apart. Right, as judgment's coming down, as the creational gifts are being taken away, And those that have a a temporary joy that's dependent on the world are falling apart. You have this small group of people that are rejoicing, that are singing for joy. And it's very evident that their joy is not dependent on the circumstances around them, which are not very good at this point. They have a joy that seems to be immune to circumstances. You say, why? Why? What is causing or producing this kind of joy in this small group of people? Well, what are they rejoicing over? Verse 14, over the majesty of the Lord. Verse 15, over the glory of the Lord. Give glory to the Lord. Verse 16, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. Now, there's three words in these three verses. They're different words that describe why these people are rejoicing. And each, different, each word has a little bit of a different emphasis. So verse 14, majesty. That means eminence or fame or superiority. Verse 15, give glory to. That word glory means weighty, right? To give weight to. Verse 16, the word glory in verse 16 means beauty. So what you have here is superiority, weight, and beauty. And all of this is being ascribed to the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Who's the righteous one in verse 16? Well, Isaiah uses the same title in chapter 53, verse 11, when he says, the righteous one, my servant. Chapter 53 is all about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what you have here in a passage full of judgment, you have a description of Jesus who would come 700 years later in the flesh but you have a description of Jesus as the righteous one. And that's so fitting because it emphasizes the satisfaction of justice, that Jesus would satisfy God's righteous demands, and that's exactly what he did. He lived a perfect life to satisfy God's righteous commands. And then he died on the cross to satisfy God's penalty for violation of those commands. Jesus completely satisfied God's justice, and that's why they are delighting here in this righteous one, because as judgment comes down, they understand that the judgment that's descending on the world and people around them isn't descending on them because it fell on the righteous one in their place. It fell on Jesus. And so they are singing for joy that what's fallen on them is grace and not judgment because it fell on the righteous one. The reason that they're rejoicing is they are ascribing superiority and weight and beauty to Jesus. And as we're gonna see, whatever you ascribe weight to is what is going to bring you joy or not bring you joy. They were ascribing weight to Jesus, and they were full of joy. A black hole is a region in space that has this incredibly strong gravitational pull that will not even allow light to come out of it, thus the title of black hole. And the way these develop is they're... they're, they're an incredible amount of mass that's condensed into a tiny little bit of space. And so the smallest black holes in space are are the size of a single atom, but the ones that are the size of a single atom have a mass that's equal to a large mountain. Most black holes are medium size, which is about a, a ball that's 10 miles in diameter, but it has a mass that's 20 times greater than the sun. And that's what creates this incredible gravitational pull is you have all this weight and all this density that is packed into this tiny space. And so not even light can get out because the pull is so strong. Question for us becomes, what are your black holes? what do you ascribe weight to? Because what you ascribe weight to ultimately is gonna be where your joy comes from. The problem is that if you ascribe weight, superiority, beauty to anything or anyone other than Jesus, then that thing or that person becomes a black hole where it begins to to steal your light, to steal your joy, to turn you inward. Pastor Jeremiah Burroughs says it this way. Earthly mindedness will kill your heart for God or your heart for God will kill your earthly mindedness. But you cannot have both. He says, stop trying to. The point he's making is that if you are functionally ascribing weight, superiority, beauty to something, you can't at the very same time expect to receive joy from Christ. Because you're going to receive joy from that which you're putting weight on, that which you're ascribing beauty to. And so if it's something other than Christ, that's where your joy is going to come from. The problem is that eventually, That joy runs out. It's a black hole. It sucks your joy. It sucks light. Leaves you empty. Say, well, how do I know what I give weight to? That's another abstract concept, right? You say, okay, I get the question. What What do I ascribe superiority, weight, and beauty to? I don't know. How do I know that? How do I know that? Well, I'd give you a couple diagnostics. I'll give you three that can begin to help you maybe understand where you are to what you're ascribing weight. Look at your calendar. Where are you spending your time? That's one. Look at your checking account, which gets at where you're spending your money. Third, I would say look at your thought life or look at your daydreams. We all daydream. What do you daydream about? You, You answer those questions, you put those together, you're gonna start to get an honest answer of where you actually ascribe weight, where you ascribe beauty, superiority. And that's the place where you're gonna draw joy from. Problem is, those things and people, those places, those become black holes. But if your joy depends on the unseen, get back to we're in the joy on the unseen. If your joy depends on Jesus Christ, if you're ascribing weight and beauty and superiority to Jesus, then what's the result? On the positive side, what, what, what evidence is in your life when you're placing weight, glory, giving glory and weight to Jesus? What's the end of this type of joy? Look at what Isaiah says at the end of verse 16. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Woe is me. That's the same phrase that Isaiah said back in chapter 6 when God called him into ministry. He said, woe is me. He he owned and confessed his sin and then received the, the healing grace of God, understanding that judgment and condemnation didn't fall on him, fell on the righteous one, and he was left being covered with grace. Now he's saying, woe is me again. But this time, and this is beautiful, Isaiah is feeling the condemnation of others as deeply as he once felt it himself. You say, what does joy that depends on Christ, joy that depends on the unseen, what does it produce? It produces compassion. It produces Compassion and sympathy for others. Why? Because one of the defining attributes of Jesus Christ is compassion. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses. That word sympathize in the Greek is a compound word Soon, patheo. Soon means with, patheo, feel. Jesus feels with you. He enters in and feels with you. So when you are ascribing weight and beauty to Jesus, and he is functionally the one that you do ascribe weight to and glory, You receive his joy and it's a joy that produces compassion and sympathy for others. It's not a self-serving joy. The joy that depends on Christ is a joy that doesn't ignore others or use others or steal from others or listen to this, even need others. It's a joy that needs Christ alone. And when that joy is met in Christ, it frees you up not to take from others, which is what a black hole does. It frees you up to give and to love and to express compassion. Who or what does your joy depend on? How do do you know how to answer that question? I'm trying to give you some diagnostics. said, so look at your calendar, look at your checking account, look at your daydreams. Let me, let me add another, let me add two more questions. Do you have compassion for those who are still under condemnation because of their sins? If you're in Christ, at some point in your life, could have been a season, could have been a point in time, but at some point in your life, you realized you were under condemnation because of your sin. And then God opened your eyes to the righteous one, to the beautiful savior, Jesus Christ. And you saw and understood for the first time, wow, condemnation fell on Jesus instead of me. And there was a point in your life, season of time, where you came alive and you had a joy that was greater than any joy you'd ever experienced in this world, the question is, have you gotten to a place where that, that compassion is waning for those that are under condemnation? Or like Isaiah, do you still feel the condemnation of others as deeply as you once felt it yourself before you met Jesus? And If your joy is in Christ, you're going to feel that weight, that condemnation that's on others, and it's going to drive you in sympathy and compassion to those around you. Let me ask a second question. Do people who are close to you, and this is getting more general on compassion, not just condemnation under sin, but do people who are close to you, spouse, sibling, friend, coworker, do they experience compassion from you? Do they experience sympathy from you? Do they experience you entering in to their life? You say, I don't know. Well, there's only one way to find out. And none of us want to hear this, but you have to Ask. Do you feel compassion for me? Do you feel sympathy for me? Just honest assessment. And the reason you ask that question is, it is the functional way that you determine who or what does my joy depend on? Is it functionally depending on Christ or functionally is it dependent on something in this seen world? Because these two types of joy are very different joy that is temporary, joy that depends on the things of this world is a self-seeking joy, ultimately. It's a black hole joy. And and eventually it turns you into a black hole where you just suck light from everybody. And you suck joy from everybody. And you steal joy from everybody. That's what happens. That's a self-serving joy. And it's inevitable if your joy is placed on something in this world. Right? But a joy that is dependent on Jesus is a sympathetic joy. It is a joy that radiates outward towards others in compassion and sympathy towards others. It's a life-giving joy that moves from you to others because as you're depending on Jesus, it's not even your joy at that point. It's the joy of Jesus moving through you to others. And when that happens, when it's radiating outward, and it's a joy that's dependent on the unseen, it turns heads. Because people may see in your life circumstances falling apart around you, but you have this joy, and they say, where's that joy come from? It's clearly not from the scene, And that kind of joy is a prelude and a foretaste of what's to come, because one day, the unseen is gonna become the seen. J.I. Packer says it so well. Hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. But it invariably does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever and it will. There can be no better news than this. This is the news that you have. For a world that's gonna come underneath the judgment of God apart from Christ. You have the news, the good news of a joy that's found in Christ and a judgment taken by him that leads to an eternity with him. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, every one of us can functionally name things in this world that we can see and touch that at times we functionally place our joy on, that we're dependent upon for joy. And every one of us, if we're honest, can describe seasons where that joy has run out, where it's become a black hole, where light has just been stolen from our lives. Joy is stolen. And it's in those moments that we experience in part what full judgment will be. But Father, you are a long-suffering God. You are full of immense patience and love. We're 2,000 years from the death and resurrection of your son and you have not sent him back again to bring final judgment because you're patient with us and you love us and you long for us to repent and turn to you, Jesus, where we find a joy that's indestructible, a joy that can't be destroyed by anything in this seen world. Father, I pray for those here that maybe have never experienced this joy, that you would draw them to your son, Jesus. They would trust him maybe for the first time and experience the healing touch of your grace. Father, would you make us not just individuals, but would you make us a community, a body of people, that radiate the joy of Jesus. And that for some of us, as you've brought in seasons of significant suffering, that that joy would only be a a deeper contrast that would cause people around us to ask questions of how can you rejoice? How do you have joy in your life when everything's falling apart? Father, would you make us faithful? And would you empower us? to give an answer, to give the reason for the hope that we have. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.